0: Hello and welcome to episode 68 of The Thing About Golf, Golf Australia magazine's eternal search to uncover the multitude of reasons that people get hooked by and on this crazy game. My name's Rod Murray and I'm pleased you've been able to join for this particular episode, which will give us a peek into the world of working with world-class professionals as a coach. But perhaps even more importantly, it will also give us all a lesson in humility. Dennis McDade is one of Australia's top golf coaches, and he's worked with some of our very best professionals for the past 20 years. But you'd never know it to talk to him, because Dennis is the very definition of humble. For McDade, the appeal is not about the high-profile names or their achievements, though he does of course enjoy and rejoice in those. But for him, it's about helping people be their best, while at the same time, doing something worthwhile for the game. Whether he's working with Mark Leishman, ahead of one of the game's majors, or an anonymous double-digit handicap player on the range at Yarra Bend, the commitment, effort and interest is the same. He's been a tireless worker in the area of junior development, and aside from all that, he's one of the game's nicest people, which is, of course, one prerequisite to being on this show. Without further ado, let's hear... From Dennis McDyde. So Dennis, we had the first thing I normally do is thank people for taking the time. I'm going to thank you for the treats on the table. I should have started interviewing you years ago. There's biscuits, there's cakes, there's all sorts of stuff. So thank you for that and thank you for taking the time. It is a commitment, the thing about
1: golf. No problem at all. And, of course, that's my lovely wife, Glenda, who's done that. I wouldn't have thought of that in a million years. As a matter of fact, I had the uh, I had the Nescafe coffee and, the, uh, and boiled the billy. That was about it. So uh, I'm pretty sure Glenda might have made you a sandwich to take with you oh, uh, goodness, later on. Oh, so. my
0: goodness me. Well, this is fair. fair- sort of special treatment. Let's make our jumping off point where it normally is. It's the the clue's
1: in the title for the podcast. The thing about golf. What's the thing about golf for Dennis McDade? Well, I the thing about golf for me is I would go back to when I first started playing. So before I played golf, I was a swimmer, a competitive swimmer at Surrey Park in in Box Hill. And here, That's here in Melbourne. In me. Melbourne, yep. And we had an outdoor pool. So the start of the season and the end of the season, it was freezing. You know, so we didn't um <clears throat> we didn't pl- we didn't swim in winter because there was an outdoor pool. And uh, I'd be about 11 we started playing started playing golf and sort of we started at Wattle Park and uh public course like probably a lot of golfers. And then dad said we started getting pretty keen on it. Dad took it up at the same time. He was born in Glasgow but n- never played golf. So just to be up so you had to do something in winter.
0: Mhm. How yep. did you pick golf? If nobody played golf already, why did? How did the golf? Do you remember the? The reason I ask is I feel this is important: the origin stories of people and the pathways into the game. We'll talk. You do a lot of junior stuff, and we'll talk about how people. It's pretty important for the game's health and futures, is it not, to sort of uncover the ways people get into the game and mm. find what ways work. So, out of the ether, somebody said, "Let's try golf." Or.
1: It was pretty much like that, yeah. So I, I played dad. As I said, dad was from Glasgow, so he really wasn't into AFL or rugby. He was a he was a soccer man. He actually played soccer oh. even when he came to first came to Australia. So I played a bit of soccer at school, a bit of footy, that sort of thing. But dad was really looking for a pastime on the weekend, and anything dad did, I just did. So we started off down at Waddle Park, and and we both really seemed to like it. I, I sort of. Even though I was hopeless, you know, I, I really enjoyed the straight challenge. Straight away, were you one of those Straight ones? away, yes, yeah, straight away. I've just gone, yep, this is me. And maybe in the back of my head, I was going, if I get good enough at this, I have to get in that <laughs> bloody swimming pool, you know. <laughs> which was pretty. To be honest, it was a pretty lonely place to be going up and down a down a swimming pool, you know, when you're that age. So anyhow, we we progressed and we joined Warrandite Golf Club, which is uh, which is actually no longer no longer there. Um, and the guy, I think he was a farmer, um, Abbott, farmer Abbott, he basically decided he wanted his land back and he'd close the gates on us. So Dad and I joined Box Hill Golf Club, which was just a couple of kilometres from where we lived. And the thing about golf for me was on school holidays, <clears throat> I got Dad had dropped me off. Dad was a construction foreman. Dad had dropped me off there at like 6.30 in the morning or 7 o'clock in the morning, said, I'll pick you up on the way home. And I'd be there all day with other juniors. Just go round. Just go round and round playing golf, having fun. And the thing about Box Hill Golf Club and a lot of golf clubs in the area, and I think this is why in Australia, I think that's why Australia has punched above its weight so much, was as a you know, 13-year-old junior, I had full playing rights. I, for all intents and purposes, I was a full member. I was allowed to play in competitions you know, or get a handicap playing competitions. I could win the club championship if I was good enough, for, for example. But the main thing was for me, I'd gone from swimming up and down a pool by myself to playing golf with all the other juniors there and laughing and, and not having an adult standing over me. You know, and one of the things, one of the great things that dad did was he got me to the stage where I could play unsupervised. And to be honest, we probably had moments where we got a bit out of control <laughs> and mo- maybe you know raised an eyebrow too. But there was always someone who'd just pull you aside and just have a chat and just go, hey, if you sort of want to be in this environment, there are, you know you expect some, the, some rules and regulations rules and about. regulations, and and I think that's a great thing about about golf clubs it doesn't matter whether it's you know Box Hill or, or anywhere else it, it, there's just so many great mentors there and and through the years I've been unbelievably fortunate with the people that I've come across in golf but that was the thing about golf for me it was just this freedom and and the whole social aspect to it and I started to get better and I enjoyed it and got frustrated like everyone else but but that was it just had an environment where it was just I couldn't believe that they would allow us to do yeah. what they allowed us to do, which was great. I reckon most golfers would
0: recognise all the ingredients that you've mentioned there. So mm-hmm. the first thing I'm going to ask is, it's been a lifetime in golf for you now since then. Do we still do that? Do we still see that? Are there still school holiday days where a certain number of kids get dropped off at eight and picked up at five?
1: I think I can only talk about my own experience. and And my own experience is that, Golf clubs are still very open and inclusive. I think from a financial point of view, I think they're probably more cognizant of the fact that they need the next generation of of golfers coming through. But from from my point of view, you know, the obviously I'm involved out at Yarabend and we do everything we can to 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 make it, you know, um, you know, open and available to golfers of all levels of ability. But I do see it at the private clubs as well. So just talking through my own experience at at public facilities and at private facilities, I don't think we have an issue with numbers coming through the gate. We have a retention problem. And if you want to start breaking down retention, you can start talking about what you spoke about more with, is this welcoming enough? Are we catering to these people who don't have the skills the highly developed skills that golfers who have played the game for 10, 20, 30 years or longer. And and one of, the, one of the things I've spoken to, you know, at Yarra Bend, we have a number of coaches. We have what we call the gateway to the golf course program. And when we sat down and revised it, I said, okay, cast your mind back. When you first went to, when you first thought about playing golf, what image did you have in your head of what you'd be doing? And I'd guarantee it would be you'd have some sort of image of yourself walking down the fairway, with your friends, playing golf to some standard, and then sitting around at the end of the day and, and deconstructing around or talking about your husbands or your wives or your the football. There's that whole social interaction. So everyone who, who samples the game, if you like, will have a different vision in their, in their head of where they want to get to. And, and as a golf community, a community of coaches and, and clubs and, and facilities, I think we need to be aware of all the different people that will walk through your gate and be ready for them. Pre-pandemic, we saw, we
0: certainly saw, Sandy Jamison will tell you, public golf numbers going down. The pandemic sort of boosted that, but the things you're talking about are the things we need to grab onto to make sure that lasts, because as we start to come out of the pandemic, the danger is golf goes back to where it was pre-pandemic.
1: Yarabend is a public cause. Were you seeing that? So at Yarrabend, it, I Bend... I think you've you've been to Yarra Bend. So when we, with, there's a group of 11 unit holders, you know, mum and dad investors and, and coaches and, and, and a couple of touring pros and that sort of thing. So when we took it over, it was just an 18-hole golf course um, that needed some sort of restoration, which we've kind of done over the last decade. But we built a driving range, which we've had to extend twice already. Um, and we built 36 holes of mini-golf. So, the idea was that from, a, from the point of view of being able to um, – the community being able to access golf, you know, grandparents could take their grandkids to the mini-golf. Um, you know, if you wanted to just practice your game, the range was there. If you wanted to play the course, the course was there and, and we've spent, you know, a lot of money there over the years. And then things like our mini-golf, we made sure that nine holes of it were wheelchair yes, accessible that. and that sort of thing. However, getting back to your question, we, prior to the pandemic – we had double-digit growth year on year on year, okay. and it was almost like the more we upgraded our facility, the more we improved it, the busier it got, and probably through word of mouth. So we weren't having, we weren't experiencing ourselves the downturning. in the golf. it a lot. Were we it, we, we yeah. actually had some growth as we improved okay. our facilities, but I can assure you that that post COVID, it's it's gone nuts. And and then that brings us back to the whole thing of okay, well, we've got people sampling the game, so there's. It's, it's not like growing the game. We've got them now. How do we retain How do we keep them? It's retention that, yeah. that I think we need to look at.
0: What about expanding beyond just golf <clears throat> as an activity, particularly for public golf courses, Dennis? The easiest and the laziest criticism to make of golf, and we hear this from those who are anti golf, there are people who are just anti golf and the notion of it. Yeah. It's a large amount of land reserved for the benefit of the few. How do we help to change that perception? What can golf do to be better at sharing? that public space. And this is something that's in your interest, I imagine,
1: being part owner of a yeah. golf facility. It, it is interesting out at Yarra Bend, as you know, we're in the middle of a national park and there are bike tracks and ovals and netball courts and football ovals. But having having said that, it's with all the spare land that is around us at Yarra Bend, people want to jog through the golf course. <laughs> and it's kind of like – and they get annoyed if a ball goes near them and that sort of thing. So I, I think – to some extent, I call them the troublesome 3%. Like if you survey someone, there'd always be someone who's got a contrary view, right? And I don't think it would matter what you tried to do to convince those people. They just wouldn't have a bar of it. But I do look at some of the places where um, where that, let's say, green space is being contested and there's not enough green space around it. It's like, things have been shut down and closed down and redeveloped to the point where it's almost the only piece of green space that's left. I, I really haven't got a solution it can to be- that problem. Do you see public golf? I've always felt public
0: golf is the most important way into golf for most people. It was your path into mm-hmm. the game. Do you agree with that? Is the is the very game itself dependent on a healthy public golf complex, for want of a better term?
1: Well, there's no doubt. So if I look at the golfers who came through the VIS program when when I was involved with it, the golfers that came through either started their golf at a public golf course or at a private course that had open doors where you could come and Semi-private. Pay-for-play. Yeah. Semi-private. semi-private, yeah. Box Hill would be an example. I think Robert Allenby was at Box Hill, was yeah, it? Yeah, Robert like? Allenby. I think Stuart Appleby Stuart went Appleby there. Stuart Appleby might and, be. and they both went to Yarra, Yarra but but I forged the path there. I went from Box Hill to, to, Yarra, to Yarra Yarra. Yeah. Yarra. Yeah. Yeah, so I credit where it's, yeah, yeah, credit yeah, where it's due. Credit where it's Rob. Yeah, And
0: they've, they've, they've done all right <laughs> in their careers,
1: but let's not forget where it all started. <laughs> um, so it, it's just, yeah, that, I, I think getting back to what I said before, one of the reasons golf, Australian golf is always punched above its weight is – Because of accessibility. It's always been possible for juniors and and, and teens and adults to access golf if they want to and bringing it back to, you know, what we spoke about before with, you know, shared access and and that sort of things. From our point of view at at Yarra like, say, closing the course on a Sunday to let people walk their dogs through it and that sort of thing makes it really tough for us as a business. You know, we do 50% of our business pretty much on Saturday, Sunday, So that's a tough gig for us. Maybe some of the um, council-owned courses, if they're still running it, they might sort of take that hit and and open it up. But um, but I I haven't got the answer for that. You know, for the people that are demanding, you know, access to these, these courses, like even, like, we've got... My <laughs> Labrador lying here. Like I'd love to go for nine holes and have him on the lead because I know he'd, he'd love to yep. walk around a golf course and have a sniff and that sort of thing. Don't have
0: more of that in Australia, isn't it?
1: It really is. Yeah, it can work. S- especially like we're we're a nation that pick up after our dogs,
0: and for the most part, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, look, generally speaking, the dog park is the prime example, isn't it? The problem is never the dogs. Yeah. It's the people <laughs> that's, the, yeah. that's the problem with the yeah. dog park. No, Lockie, you're on right, mate. You, you stay asleep there. He's a beautiful, magnificent specimen that you've got as well. Let's move away from that. Of course, one of the reasons we're talking to you, Dennis, is that your own profile is not particular. You're very well known within golf, but not so much outside. And yet you've had an influence on some of Australian golf's most impressive careers. Mark Leishman is a student of yours. Run me through some of the other people you've worked with and still work with over time. And I know that you're not super comfortable with the notion of (laughs) blowing your own trumpet, but Mm -hmm. it's undeniable, is it not, that you have worked with some of our most successful players over time.
1: I've been one Australian coach who's worked with some successful players. Um, So you you mentioned... Mark Leishman before, who I still work with. We've had a relationship for over 20 years. I can say very sincerely that he is the same guy that I met all those years ago. Like, all his success, um, everything he's achieved in the world of golf hasn't changed him one iota. And, you know, it has to be said that, you know, he's very much a product of his mother and father. Yeah, very you much. know, Paul and Polita are just magnificent <laughs> wow. people. Yeah, so so Mark Marcus Fraser, I worked with for a long time. Another yeah. similar sort of personality to Leishman, I would suggest. Yep, terrific fella, great player, um, underrated player, underrated. So many like, ones, I think. Played Europe for sixteen years. Yeah, um,
0: yeah. led the Olympics after the first round. There was a damn yes. good chance of making having a medal
1: there. Yep, and still a hell of a player. Um, Paul Sheehan. A, Coach Paul through his extremely through his successful Japanese tour career. What All. a player, J- Japan Open winner. Yeah.
0: You know, um, which for those who might not be familiar, that would be one of the most brutally difficult tests of golf the Japan Open is. Yeah. Generally, an overpass goal. Makes the US Open
1: of the 80s look like a stroll in the park quite often. I have to say, Paul got me over to a, to a Japan Open one year, I think more about. I'm not quite sure that I believed the setup he was talking about.
0: <laughs> and you see it,
1: and, and I went there, and um, there were these ladies with rakes on the left-hand side of the first. And I said, "Gee, what are these ladies doing?" He says, "Oh, they're just raking the rough so that it grows in such a way that the ball goes to the bottom." He says, so like, "Okay, I'm getting an idea of this." And I, I, after three holes, I was laughing. He goes, "What are you laughing at?" I said, "I can't believe the setup." there was a par five that was just like a funnel. It kept getting narrow and narrower and <laughs> the narrow. It <further> was <laughs> just to the point where I think it was about at, sort of layup distance it was about twelve yards wide. I've just gone, geez, you want to have your straight shoes on this <laughs> week's show. But but he was a he was a he was a, a really, Another really underrated good. player. We have yeah. had quite a few go to
0: Japan. We had Brendan Jones on the show just a couple of weeks ago. Fifteen yeah. time winner in Japan. Extraordinary player. could could walk yeah.
1: around most golf courses in Australia and people wouldn't know who he was. Yeah. yeah. Which he's
0: very happy about that. Yeah, by the way. That's sure, he's yeah. down to the ground. Yeah. But.
1: what a player Brendan. Yeah. Um so Matt Griffin, you know, still working with Matt, playing up in Japan, you know, very different Type of player, yeah. like their golf DNA. These guys are all completely different, you know. And I coach each one of them, each other, each one of them quite differently. And then um, who else have I coached? Uh, Bryden McPherson. So I coached Bryden through you know the early and mid stages of, of his career. Of Course, one that the British amateur is a as an amateur. Now there's which an active was, mind. We've had him on, him on the podcast here too. But yeah.
0: that's a Maybe
1: an overactive mind in some ways. Highly, highly intelligent. Extraordinarily fella. intelligent. Um, no off switch. Great stairs. Yeah, I've had some conversations with him. I've just gone. I'm clearly, and I think his dad might have been there once too. I'm just going. I'm the least intelligent guy in this room right now. Let me tell you. So, but lovely fella. Um, You've got
0: your notebook. Come through the. Go I've through got
1: the got my notebook because I've I've. Um, and then a, a couple of the guys, uh, you know, I'm, I'm working at the moment with Todd Sinnott, they uh-huh. sort of coming back from coming back from a, mm, from injury. Uh, you know, extraordinary physical ability. Todd Sinnott, just yeah, a amazing, staggering yeah. golfer yeah. to watch. Yeah. To
0: listen to the sound of that contact is amazing.
1: Yeah. And with the you know with with Todd, he's he's a hell of a golfer. Loves the game, like just obsessed with the game, like you know, like we all are. Um, but with the injury that he had prior, sort of coming along one of the things we've had to do with him is is totally change the way – what practice means okay. to him, you know, just from a pure volume. You and, can't and hit force. a 1,000 balls a day, Todd. You need yeah, to back – Yeah, it's off just – well, it's just managing yeah. just managing that. And, um, and then some other players I've worked with, um, Gareth Patterson from New Zealand. Uh-huh, left-hander. Left-hander, lovely guy, Gareth. Um, always d- just one of nature's gentlemen, Gareth, like you have not got a bad bone in his body. And then um, – Ash Hall, I coached, you know, pretty much through through his through his career. Um, lost a playoff just a couple of years ago with Jordan Spieth and Cameron Smith, if
0: I'm not mistaken, at the Australian Open. Yes, was he in did. that three way yeah. playoff. Well, lost he, is a strong he, way to put that. So, yeah, in
1: the playoff that was won by, I think, Spieth. Did he not hold yeah. part across the, the green there at Royal Sydney? Yeah, it, it is interesting. Like I, I, look at, you know, you look at players that have made it. That you know, pl- players that you've you've you know done your best to help them get as good as they can. And you've got players that have made it and, and the ones that may, perhaps didn't quite get there. And, and you look at – you always reflect on that. Course, right? As a coach, to. you have to. You know, this is part of the process of getting better. Hard to find and, a better player
0: than Ash Hall. If you went out and watched yeah. him play golf, yeah. you figure, well, of course he's going to be playing on yeah. the PGA Tour. He's as mm. good as
1: golf yeah. can be played. And well, that's true. Well, Mark Leishman has said of Ash that when they played Pennant that the only guy he was ever really concerned playing against in match play was Ash, Ash Hall. Yeah. And I actually said that to Ash, and Ash was a bit surprised by that. And I said, well, might be a bit better than you think you are. But so what's, your theory? Was-
0: what's your theory about that? Why does Mark Leishman make it in Ash Hall? Not that Ash Hall hasn't made it.
1: That would be a harsh assessment.
0: It's not easy to get a start yeah. on the World's Tour. There's a lot of guys who, if they could get a start, could mm-hmm. make a career. But getting a start
1: is extremely difficult. Mm. One of the things I've always said is is I think to win a golf tournament or to – get your break, you need a little bit of luck as well. You can have skill, you can have a great team around you and that sort of thing. And, and I kind of look at Ash and you just go, was there a sliding doors moment? Mm-hmm. And there was when he was playing the web.com, or he used to call it the Wet. .com by the way, Ashley. So <laughs> it was almost you'd go there on Monday and Tuesday and just gone, geez, the course super's done a great job getting this ready. You could see the way the course super wanted the course yeah. to play. And then by and the time the Thursday morning came, it was like dartboards <laughs> again. Like, it was, geez, we've, we had six inches of rain, But anyway, um, but he lost two playoffs um, pretty much back to back. I can't remember the year off the top of my head. And it was kind of like, if he, and he finished, eventually finished 27th on the 25th. And it was like, if he wins one of those playoffs secures his pj tour card maybe we're having a similar conversation about ash to what we, yeah. we we have about mark you know there's definitely those you know seizing seizing your moment and or, or having that you know something go your so way and just yeah. go, oh, we, so we know in golf tournaments, you can play your best golf and not win. So and somebody, like, somebody plays better. That, well, Camp Percy or, wants to play off to a hole in one. Yeah.
0: Jonathan Burrow, what do you do about that? <laughs> <laughs> in the dark. <laughs> they didn't even know it had gone in, I don't think, yeah, yeah. until somebody at the green yeah. said it's in.
1: So, so it, it, it can be something as simple as that sliding doors moment. But but the other thing with, with say, a look at someone like Mark or someone like, Marcus Fraser, you know, when they were getting close to turning pro, we had, you know, we sat down, and we said, right, here's our plan A. Now, if plan A doesn't work out, here's our plan B. If plan C doesn't work out, we've got plan a, plan D, and hopefully we don't get to plan E. And and Felice, if I talk about him for a moment, you know, the the plan A was because he was coming off a very strong amateur career and was clearly ready and clearly competitive. You know, I always say the best way to be to get yourself on tour is to have your game pretty much at tour standard when you go through Q School. So he was clearly at that level and went over to the US and just didn't play as well as he could. So he didn't get through there. Came back to Australia, got his Aussie card, um, missed his Asian card, um, played a couple of events, some of the – I'm pretty sure they were Von Neider Tour events back then and, and won a couple of those and just shot some unbelievable scores, you know, some very low 60s. As a matter of fact, I think he might have shot 60 at – Well, aware. Woolowe. He yeah. won at Woolowe, I remember that, yeah. and it was
0: some extraordinary yeah. golf.
1: Yeah, and then he went to, and then he went up to Korea, got his Korean Tour card, and he had a third in that. Did and, not know that. Yep. He played that, the Korean Tour. Yep, so he got his card, he finished third in the first event, and there's a story that goes with that, and and I'll leave that for Mark to tell you one day. Okay. <laughs> he'll, he'll be happy to tell you the story around what happened to his ball on a particular hole when he was, um, the chance to win the tournament. And very much as Leash does, he said, "Right, I'll show you guys." He went out, and won the next week, and then went to the US and started Monday qualifying for the Nationwide. So he Nationwide Tour. He had a very strong um, awareness of where he wanted to play, how he was going to get there, and he started Monday qualifying. And um, you know, he got into some events. And you know, at that stage, we had the, the the couple of Nationwide events in Australia, so he sort of had that little bit of status. And then, cut a long story short, he won the Midlands tournament um, in his second year over there on the PGA Tour and really hasn't looked back. So if I look at someone like Mark, he had a very strong purpose to where he wanted to get to and why he wanted to be there, and and I think that makes a difference as well.
0: In a game that is so – where confidence is so important, that road that you've just outlined for Mark can eat away at confidence and destroy players, and it has done to some very good players – is there something about the personality that you're born with that makes you not impervious but able to better handle it? We've already spoken about what a laid-back character Leashman is. <laughs> how important is that and how much of that can you build in?
1: So around, let's call it a set of mental and, I don't know, human slash personal skills that you need to be successful at the highest level, I think there are certain... Number of those that are innate, and then there are some that are acquired. So I think one of one of Mark's greatest strengths, and it's something that's been in common with a lot of the players that I that I've coached, is they learnt to play golf by playing golf. Mm-hmm. You know, they, they, that's interesting. Yeah. They, they learnt to play golf by playing golf, and then. You know any work that I do, so so Mark, for example, is very much a, what I call a visual external player. So he'll see the shot and the image of that almost creates the swing, the setup, and the swing, and everything else he does. So my job, to some extent, was to over a period of time give him a better set of mechanics so he could be in that mode and just hit good shots more often and the bad shots not be quite as bad. Yeah. So, but he's one of Mark's greatest greatest strengths, or. or Call the character traits probably is he lives to compete at the highest level and beat the best plays he can play against you know at the highest level possible. So if you put him, you know, coming down the stretch and he's in a major against you know the best players in the world, that's where he wants to be. He's shown and, that, and hasn't that's he? not all. Players want to do no, that. He's a big moment player. Is he, he? Cam Smith is very much the yeah, same. They, they, they live players. for that, and you know. You, I consider myself to be, you know, reasonably competitive, but that sort of thing, there, I'm, I'm not 100 percent sure how I'd be in that situation. <laughs> I, I never had the opportunity, but I, I do know I used to, in the in the limited playing I did, I used to I used to shake when I was holding a putter, and it meant something. So, but but those guys live for that. So I think, you know, looking at at, at Mark, for example, he he had you know a lot of the the traits and a lot of the qualities that you needed. He had, and then, um. He got onto PGA Tour in 2009 and, and the start of, like, end of 2011 still hadn't won, which, which I was kind of looking at going, yeah, we just haven't quite kept moving forward. And, and he basically got to the stage where it was like, yeah, I know I'm pretty strong in this area, but, but I think there might be something missing. So he started working with Neil Smith. And then early the next year, he, he won for the first time at, at the Travellers. So 61,
0: I think, in the last round. 60, Sat around for about 62, three hours. Yeah, Sat around for three early, hours so, and waited yeah.
1: for Charlie Hoffman to finish. And yeah. So he came from a long way back. And, and Didn't Marcus win. Fraser win the same weekend in Europe, maybe? So Marcus Fraser lost in a playoff to no. Danny Willett in Germany, I'm going to say. Yes. So that was almost the the weekend of my so you life That you one didn't sleep
0: that weekend virtually <laughs> at all, obviously. <laughs> it was a
1: bit of a mess. <laughs> a bit of a mess. <laughs> so sort of middle of Monday morning, but but that was yeah, so so I think, you know, around the equipment you need, you know, obviously we can talk golf clubs and clothing and footwear and ball and that sort but of thing. They're a given aren't they, you, are you given. You can yeah. dial those in. Yeah. You can go to a good club fitter and he can
0: build you a set of clubs that you don't need to change and it'll yeah. produce what you want. Yeah. The things that aren't programmable in that way are what happens upstairs, aren't they? You, say that, you know, He's thinking, what am I doing wrong? I'm not winning. The truth is, like majors, there's a lot more good players than there are tournaments. Mm. So it doesn't matter who's not winning each week. If you're on the PGA Tour, and in fact, if you're on the web.com tour that, or the Corn Ferry Tour, that's secondary tour, Ash Hall is a hell of a player. That's a hell of an achievement. You're in the top couple of hundred players on the planet. Absolutely. Yeah. And yet, we view it as... Not getting the job done. Oh, he hadn't won. Been three years, he hasn't won yet. It's it's quite extraordinary, isn't it?
1: (laughs) And, and, you know, the the putters will start questioning well, how good Mm. is he? And, yeah. And, um, we missed that punt on He's he's been unsuccessful because he hasn't, you know, won on this tour or that tour yet. And it's like, wow, you you need to get out and watch some golf and just see just how good these guys are and how difficult it is. You know, you, you literally need the planets to align for you. Yeah and that little bit of
0: luck, as you say. Yes. I suppose we judge, don't we, by the extraordinary. Tiger Woods, I would consider extraordinary. Rory McIlroy is extraordinary. Jordan Spieth is extraordinary. Justin Thomas is extraordinary. But they kind of set the benchmark, don't they? There's, mm. there's a level of golf which I think, well, Cam Smith is in there, and I think Mark Leishman drifts in and out of that mm. that tier of golf. He's not always up in that mm. rarefied air, but he can hold his own there when he gets there. There's something very special about them, isn't there? I wonder whether we underplay... That the Dustin Johnsons and the Brooks Kepkers and what they do is almost unthinkable for normal humans, isn't it?
1: Yeah, I, 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 I think so. If you look at, um, you know, at the moment there's, you know, you know, a lot of putters talking about Rory and and you know, their measuring can't play, it. terrible, they can't play, can like- a wedge, Dennis. Didn't you know that? Yeah. It's a shocking wedge. So you know i I'm, I'm not going to sort of you know pass a comment on on you know the way he's what, what his wedge games like at the moment, but you know when you you start reeling off the names that you've you've reeled off there like trying to get on top, no, trying to get into contention and, and um you know deal with any lopsidedness in the draw and get yourself in there with a chance on the back nine right. on a Sunday. There's three it's, and a half
0: days leading up to the
1: not easy to the point. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And it's you look at the players' championship this year and, and it's not often that you get a side of the draw that's 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 that lopsided. Um and of course, you know, they'll you know the the, the, the Telecast will say, well here are significant players that have missed the cut. And it's mm-hmm. kinda of like Notables. Oh, no, <laughs> the notable. Sorry, there's the word notables. notables. Yeah, notables that have that have missed the cut. but but it is um, it is extraordinarily difficult to come out on top in in any one of those weeks. You just need so many things to go to go right, and you can do everything to the best of your ability, and someone plays better than you. But I, I, it is interesting just how often in a major you look at a you look at a scoreboard after two rounds or three rounds and just go, yep, it's a major.
0: Uh, I don't I've think this has been controversial.
1: Month. I always feel like a major is is perhaps given what we just spoke about is perhaps an easier event to win mm-hmm. than a regular tour George event. Kepka says so. Yeah, because if you look at it, if you look at a major, you know, let's say the field's one hundred and fifty-six. One hundred and fifty-six. How many guys out of that one hundred and fifty-six really think? they can take on the course and beat those guys coming down the stretch. Bob Rotella says 10. Yeah. You told me once 10, maybe 15.
0: Yeah. You throw out the other 140, there's 10 to 15 who genuinely think and can back it up. Yeah. There may be the odd one who Mm. thinks they can win who shouldn't be thinking that, Yeah, but there's 10 or 15 in reality who can. If you're one of them, that puts you in pretty rarefied company, doesn't
1: it? And then you will get the extraordinary – the extraordinary new talent come through, and the planets align, and they seize their moment and away they go. And now they're part of the discussion of those ten to fifteen players. Right? That's Jordan yeah. Spieth. You know, yeah. he he was that
0: player, I think, yeah. of this sort of most recent generation of just. There was, he was clearly a special talent. Yeah, but exactly, he holds a bunker shot, which he's done a hundred times in his life. But he holds a bunker shot that you're not going to try. You're not going to yeah. hold it in ten tries. Wins a tournament, and the way he yeah. goes,
1: and and of course, I think it's it's difficult for for us as, as people who haven't done it, like to have, you know, a wedge or a nine-iron or an eight-iron into the last hole and all you've got to do is hit the green and two-putt and you win the tournament. It's could just like... Is, how hard can it be? <laughs> how hard can it be? That's right. You know, can, you know. Tom Watson had a nine-iron
0: yeah. into the last green at yeah. Turnberry. Mm-hmm.
1: <laughs> I was there it? that year.
0: Matt Goggin played with him. I've had Matt tell mm-hmm. the story a couple of times and he said, you know, as soon as Watson hit, he said, that's too good.
1: Yeah. he's sound, right?
0: that's too good. That's a... Yep. Yeah, and just that. Yeah. What are you talking? about? three, four feet. Yeah. If it stops rolling three feet earlier, it doesn't get over the. Ba- who knows what can happen? You talk about sliding doors moments. It's and, it, uh,
1: and talk about you know judge of judge of talent. Um, I was over there that year, and uh, and Tim Wood had a practice round with Tom Watson. And it's um,
0: extraordinary, isn't it? Tim Wood gets to have a practice round with Tom Watson. What a game! So, we played. It was
1: amazing. So it was interesting and. And I, I'll try to get this story as close as I can, and, and Tim would be able to correct me again if I get it wrong. But basically, Tim said, "Hey, there's a um, there's a time slot with with Norman and Watson. Should I put my name down?" I've just gone, "Yes." <laughs> Is that I a for, me, question? I think I think more for me. I wanted to ask yeah, a few right. questions, you know. Um, so anyhow, so Tim went and introduced himself to to Tom, and then. I th- somewhere along the line, we got word that Norman had been delayed. Somewhere he was coming in by a helicopter or something. You know, at some stage, so that delayed the tea time. So eventually, um, and I'm I'm just trying to think of who we played with. Not the other Daniel team, Gaunt. David, Daniel, actually, Daniel Gaunt put his name down as well. I'm sure it was Daniel Gaunt. So we were standing on the tee, thinking, well, you know, it's not going to happen. And um, and Watson walks out, and he's with three other players, and I cannot. For the life of me, remembered the three other plays. So he'd obviously teed up another game, thinking Tim had Tim had hit off. And he looked at Tim, and he turned around to the guys, and he said, "Sorry, I've already got a game organized wow. And walked onto the tee and played played eighteen holes with with Tim and and Daniel. And and I think we were walking down the second, and he said to Tim, he said, "Oh, where's the wind coming from this way?" And Tim's kind of going, "I haven't looked." He said you're playing a British Open, you might want to check. There was something like that. But the thing that really stood out, so the reason I bring this story up, was I was watching Watson and he'd had the, the hip replacement surgery and he looked like he was moving really well. But with the putter in his hand, I was looking at his putting stroke going, because I remember him you know, in his youth, of course, having been someone who watched so much golf on TV and I'm kind of thinking, geez, that putting stroke looks a bit shaky. And, of course, he putted the spots of it. So, so I was I was really hoping he was going to win that week. But I remember thinking... Yeah, you're not as clever as you think you are. <laughs> like he, just, he was just holding it from from all postcodes that week. So, but what a what a player, what a week!
0: Let's talk about coaching, you. Really. So, how did how did that come to you? Because for a lot of people, as like most people, you wanted to be a player. Then the realisation that perhaps you're not going to be a player because that's an extraordinarily hard road to hoe, even if you're extraordinarily good. Your options are to leave the game. Or to go into coaching, some would never consider coaching. They would rather pull out their own teeth without anaesthetic than consider coaching people. Why coaching for you? What was the appeal there?
1: So for me, by the time I started my traineeship, although I told mum and dad it was, well, this is you know me backing up if I don't make it as a player, I was, I was, I just wanted to be involved in golf. That that, in some way, shape, or form, I wanted to be involved in golf. So that's
0: true passion, isn't it, Dennis? I can't be a player. I'll be a coach. I can't be a coach I'll... You end up like me, I'll write
1: about mm. the game. And for me, I was, I was extremely fortunate. So, you know, Bruce Green coached me from, oh, I'm going to say from about 15 years of age through kind of 19, 20, And someone who just loved coaching. Like, it, although he sort of ran Royal Melbourne, he clearly. pro Royal Melbourne, by the way, for, head pride for Royal, a long time, sorry. Bruce yeah. Green, a legendary yeah. figure in yeah. Australian golf, Bruce Green. So I basically said to Bruce, I want to turn pro. And, and he. I think at that stage, I'd finished. I'd finished Year Twelve. I went to uni for a year, and and like a lot of things in life, I suppose I went to uni and I figured out what I didn't want to do. It helped me figure out what I didn't want to do, and that was, you know, just I, as important. I, I did electronics wanted, a it? course called electronics and computer science because this is how how, how long ago this is. You had to be able to program computers, but the electronic side of the the course was about repairing computers because you didn't throw stuff out. your head. Dennis. (laughs)
0: There's nothing in it, it's a fact. It's
1: a fact. So so I did that for 12 months. I've just gone, there's no chance I'm doing this. So, anyhow, um, Bruce said, mm hmm, mm hmm. He said, there might be a position for you here. And the first thing he did was he teed up a job for me at Dunlop Slazenger in South Melbourne. Um and basically, I'm pretty sure from a, for a boy from Box Hill that was knock, knocking off the rough edges, like we might just get you a little bit schooled in, in, in you know sales service and, and, and what have you. So which, which I'm eternally grateful for because it was a, was a great sort of 12 months or so of, of my life, you know working there and I was still working the game. And when I from the moment I started my traineeship with Bruce, um, we still had, there were still caddies at Royal Melbourne. And I think they still are, but there are a lot of young caddies. And Marcus Johnson and I, a terrific fellow, Marcus, too, um, he said, well, you guys should be um, coaching the caddies. I was just going, oh, can we do that? He said, yeah, you should do that. And he said, and you should charge them. I was going, really? He said, yep. So we used to, Marcus and I, we charged the caddies $2 each a month, I think. And then we'd get them together and basically... Try to coach them with no skills, but I found, um, I found at that period of time that I actually quite enjoyed it. I quite enjoyed being out. I certainly enjoyed the challenge of it. I certainly recognised I had no skill. It's just all bluff. What I'd learned from Bruce, which is typically what you do. And then when I went to Keswick Golf Club. Bob Spencer was very much the same. Bob, Bob was, I'd have, I'd sort of built a relationship with, you know, with the members and some of them say, hey, do you give lessons and that sort of thing? And I said to Bob, hey, do I give lessons? And he said, <laughs> yes, you give lessons, you know? And he said, here's what you charge and blah, blah, blah. And and the, my early experiences of coaching were coming from a base of absolutely no idea what I was doing, but dealing with the members of the club that I got on well with and enjoying that experience. And and they kind of knew that I was no good. But I think they enjoyed that one-on-one time as well. And it's something that I've always enjoyed with coaching is that that interpersonal relationship. It's different with with every player. And it's interesting, you know, when you called me up and, and, um, and wanted to get together, I, I wrote down a list of, like, the players that I've coached over time. And I've just gone... Yep, I enjoyed coaching every one of them. And there are players over time who I have had the opportunity to coach that I've said no to because I kind of know them. It's just like... It's not going to work. It's not going to work. It not It's just not going to work. You know? A caddy and a player yeah. have to get on, a coach and a player yeah. I assume have to get on. Yeah. So basically I, I had enjoyed doing that. And then one of the other things, a bit like that uni story of figuring out what I don't like, I'd figured out that I wasn't a salesman. I... I I struggled with the whole irate customer sort of thing and, and, you know, to some extent I think there's a difference between servicing a membership and being subservient yes. and I think sometimes the members kind of got a little bit lost with that and being the son of a short-tempered Glaswegian, <laughs> I've kind of gone, you know what, I, I'll one day, might not be now, but I'm going to tell someone what I really think of them. And that's just not, not just going to hurt work. either my employer or it's going to hurt me directly. So so I kind of figured out that I – sorry, that sounds a bit dramatic, but I kind of figured out I didn't want to be in a pro shop, like in, in like doing it's, all of that stuff. Yeah.
0: There's ways to coach to sell clubs, isn't there? That's one That's one sort of way of teaching golf, isn't there? I mean, you should yeah. Buy this there. That, yeah. I wouldn't have seen you as that. You would coach to make players better, I would think. For them to enjoy their golf yeah. more, and, and sometimes equipment goal. is part of, of that, that deal.
1: You know, you, you get someone sort of bowl up with a set of golf clubs it's, that's that's wrong for them. Wrong for them. That's that can impede. But um, so really, that that was my experience before I went out and played. Was that yeah, I could see myself doing some coaching. I actually quite enjoy it. And then when I um, when my playing career was if you call it a career was was done it was just like okay i'm actually going to be a coach this is what this is what i want to do and to some extent i six again mentors you know once i finished um and and to give bob spencer his due at Keysbury golf club when i finished my time i'd really struggled with my playing early in my traineeship and bob spencer spent a lot of time with me during the traineeship to the point where i've just gone i've got to. Crack at this. So, you know, we talk about coaches who have high profile and coaches who don't. Like, Bob gave me some, you know, along with Bruce, gave me some really good instruction. And then at the end of my traineeship, Bob's, Bob said, Hey, what are you going to do? He said, Because I'd like you to be my partner, which was an extraordinary um, offer and, and gesture and one that I was very tempted to take at the time. And I said, Look, I've got to know. I said, For me to um, for me to have the sort of um, drive and, and willingness to do whatever I do in my life, I've got to find out whether I'm good enough or not because I, I, I don't want to be in my mid-30s or mid-40s going, I, I should have had a crack. So I, I said to him, it's unbelievable offer, but I'm going to say no. And at that time he said, you know what? He said, if that's where you're headed, he said, you probably need someone who's a little more skilled than me. So I went along to Dale Lynch. So, you know, through the years that I was playing, you know, Dale Lynch was coaching me. and, and someone who flies under the radar, Dale Lynch. <laughs> is, about, yeah, extraordinary. Yeah, we'll get him one day. Don't yeah, worry about yeah, that. Yes, please. Yeah. And he was an extraordinary <laughs> coach. And, and, again, another very strong influence on my coaching career. It was just like, hey, he's a guy who really seems to enjoy what he's doing. He's very knowledgeable. I get better. I feel good after I've spent time with him and, and my golf games better. Um so when I when I finished, to some extent finished playing, I said to Dale, I, I want to go down the coaching path. Um, and the first my first job, you'll laugh at this, my first job was teaching into a net at a pitch and putt course. Um, with Sean Lynch, Sean Lynch who ran Australian Pitch and Putt. So there were two sites. There was one in Waverley and there was one in Danny I don't think the Danny Nong one's there. And and Sean was very generous and, and paid me a small retainer each week, and I sort of ran clinics and what have you. But with the, the talk about you know where technology is now, I had I had a a camera that took a full size VHS with a <laughs> just, yeah, of, you know, with a TV and I drew lines and and all it all it did when I looked at it on video and slowed it down, I just sort of just highlighted the point that I didn't know what I was looking at. But, <laughs> this is interesting. <laughs> but that was sort of like the. the and, but even then, even even though. I was sort of just starting out. It was just like, right, I'm, I'm, I'm off and running, even though, you know, you know.
0: In some ways, Dennis, you were – we talk about a golden era of professional tournament golf in Australia. Hmm. That was a real golden era in the beginning, a pioneering moment for coaching, was it not? The 1980s, the 90s, and the the sudden marrying of technology to – we've seen it come full circle. We've had a generation of players with beautiful-looking golf swings that cameras can help to produce – We've come to a track man era where we're starting to see again more players with somewhat unorthodox swings, but the numbers work. Mm -hmm. You've been there from the beginning of that. That's been – often think about the – when we talk technology in golf, we always think about golf clubs and golf balls, and that's true. That's a part of it. But the coaching technology is off the charts, is it not? What we've learned about everything from the characteristics of the balls and the clubs and how they interact with each other – to the human body and how it works, how to build a human body, the best way to swing a golf club, the most efficient mm. way and get the most out of it. You've been part of something quite remarkable, yeah. have you not?
1: Yeah, so, yeah it's, it's 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 been an extraordinary time to be a coach and, you know, as coaches we're always, you know, we're always at least trying to get better and step back from what we're doing and, and what have you. But we've gone from an era where, you know, very few coaches had you know, a a video camera and could really explain what was going on even when they did have one. And I'd stick my hand up and say when I first had one, that was me, you know, coming off a a base of very little, you know, coaching ability. But it's been... it's So we talk about that there's a balance between the art of playing the game and the science of getting better, if you like. And I think, um, you know, there's, there's so many technologies around now that, and I've probably been, probably got caught up in it, not caught up in it, but, but challenged by it, is there's so many different pieces of technology. You know, you've got Doppler radar like, you know, TrackMan. And, okay, well, you've got all of, these, all of these different numbers, if you like. Well, what are those numbers? You know, what's the proper definition of those? How do they interact with each other? And what are you going to do about it? And then you've got things like, um, you know, there's biomechanical K-vest. testing equipment, K vest. You've got pressure plates. plates. And it's like, it's very, it's been a challenging time to be a coach because you need to be across this. Well, and consumers demand it, don't they, Dennis? I well, they do. You, there's you an have,
0: expectation. Yeah. There's you an have expectation. 20 markers coming to, you yeah. to say, well, put me on the track, man.
1: Yeah. So, yeah, and it's interesting because they see what's going on. So just because you've got, information that's not necessarily knowledge right so but it's it's a challenging time and i, I suppose at one stage i bought my own 3d testing equipment it was very expensive wow well, yes <laughs> and then and then i figured out that you know what it's probably better to get a biomechanist who's an expert in analyzing the interaction between all the different body parts and being able to have a, have a conversation with them because they do it all the time so for example any of that testing equipment, if you're going to compare one set of data points with another, it's got to be calibrated the same way. All of those those um, sensors need to be positioned on the body exactly the same way. But then, like, if you look at something like force plates, so if we look at force plates as opposed to pressure plates, force plates will give pressure and they'll give twist, they'll give torque it's like then you've got to figure out, okay, which of those data points are important and relative to what we're doing right now? And that's not easy when you get 20 or 30 data points spat spat out at you. So that's where I think it goes back to when I was VIS. When I got the job as VIS assistant coach, I sat down with Frank Pike and he said, Dennis, he said, there's only two things you've got to do. He said, when you get up in the morning, think about what you're going to try to achieve with your athletes that day. And he said, surround yourself with people who are smarter than you. Like, and, and I wasn't sure whether he was having a crack at me or not, whether he thought he got the right man, but, but that I still reflect back on that. So I look at any of the players that I've coached who have got better, I can't claim credit for what they've done to some extent because they bring a certain amount of, of talent to the table in the first place. You know, and there are people who will argue with that, well, they would have found their way there anyway. And you could go, well, they might have, but it would have taken a hell of a lot bloody longer, you know. And then every one of those players has had other people who have had an influence on their development, be it a biomechanist, be it a physical preparation person, be it a doctor, be it, you know, a, a mentor, be it a sports psych. They've all had, you know, it's, it's very much a, a patchwork quilt of, of people who have assist them along, assisted them along their journey. So it's I've probably got to the stage where I've gone, right, I don't need to be an expert in analyzing biomechanical data, but I've got to be able to read it and have a conversation with a biomechanist to some extent on their terms and them them on my golf pro lingo terms. And you just have these discussions with, with different people.
0: Cross pollinations because where you've got physical trainers now yeah. working with golf. Yeah. When you first started, there would have been no, there was a golf hmm. pro. The golf pro taught yeah. you how to play golf. Yeah. That's what they did. Now, now there's all these other people, particularly if you're going to be an elite player, yeah. there's a whole bunch of other people requiring We joke yeah. about the modern yeah. touring pro travelling with a team of yeah. nutritionists and all of those people have a role to play in the success yeah. of that play, don't they?
1: Yeah. And look, from a coaching point of view and a coaching development point of view, I don't want... This is going to sound terrible. I've got to be careful the way I phrase this. I have people that I deal with and they're not yes men or yes women they'll just go, they'll challenge what I'm thinking or they'll challenge why I'm thinking of heading down a certain path. And sometimes I write, right, sometimes they're going, yeah, but you, you're missing this. This is actually significant. How does that fit into where you want to head to? So that's been one of the good things to this day. To this day as reasonably well developed as what I feel like my coaching skills are. I'm still challenged by the people that I that I work with, which is, which is a terrific thing because that, Eventually ends up being uh, providing a better result for the players you're working with. Go to the other extreme, Dennis, and there are still
0: those who'll tell you it's all nonsense. You just got to look at the ball. Hmm? What's the ball doing? Is that still
1: legitimate? Where does that fit in? So I, I can tell you one of the things that that I, I think you know the ball is just it's a it just reacts to how it's being struck, right? So it's one of the though, things it? it is the truth. The ball flight is the ultimate truth. Is hmm. So I do I do spend I do spend a lot of time watching my players play, watching their flight, getting them to hit different shots off different lies. You know, one of one of the things about about golf is if we look at how I learned to play different shots, you know, back at Box Hill I had a bag of practice balls. Um, and it took a long time to get a, a, a bag that had you know balls worth hitting and, and, balls, that's you right, know, yeah. and you'd hit them down and then you'd put your bag down chip to it that sort of thing. And um, you know depending on the season there were different lies and different grasses to hit off and, and that sort of thing as, as it was like out the golf course you know, nowadays, you know just about everyone practices at a driving range They don't have to go and pick their balls up they're hitting you know range balls you know what have you so off a mat off a mat so it's flat. yeah that's flat so it's it's i was talking to one of my um developing juniors one of the young juniors i'm developing on the weekend and and we were talking about how to sort of practice ball shaping and i said well you can do your basics here you know because you've got the option of hitting off a mat or you're very fortunate you can go and hit off a grass tee. and i said so you can start to introduce some of that. I said there needs to be an aperture through which you're hitting the ball and, you know, eventually we need some depth control as well. I said, but I can guarantee you here's what's going to happen one day. You're going to be coming down the stretch in a tournament. You're going to have to birdie the last to, you know, make a cut or get through Q school or win a tournament. And the ball's going to be above your feet in the first cut of rough. The flag's are going to be cut hard right in behind a front trap and you're going to have to hit a high fade off a lie that may, where the ball wants to go left. I said, let's make sure when that, a moment, when that moment arrives, you're ready for it, or at least as best prepared as you can. It's be. not
0: completely foreign to you. Yeah,
1: and we're yeah. probably getting a little bit away from, from, from technology and talking a little bit more about the art. But ultimately, you know, we use all of that technology to create, let's call it a great baseline of, of mechanics that you can then go and expand upon or adjust a little bit to hit all the different all the
0: different shots. It's the beauty of the game, isn't it, Dennis, that there are, in fact, no two shots the same. Even if you hit no. a ball, drop another ball right at your feet and hit that, those two shots can never be because yeah. the conditions are never quite exactly the same. The lie is slightly Everything is always slightly different in golf. It's, an, it's a constant change, isn't mm. it? And so you can't science it out of existence, can you? There's quite a few sort of systems and thought processes about how to break the game down. It's that money ball idea from baseball, and we can bring that to golf. And there's no doubt they've got merit. What do
1: they miss, if anything? See, I think there's you know, if just talking technology for a moment. You can you can definitely see, you know, using using technology, you can see the way different players hit different shots. You know, so one of the things that I'm pretty big on, you know, around, if you want to call it collecting data or analysing data, is when a player is moving well, so be that that I think they're moving well or, or whoever's working with me thinks that, yeah, this is really good, let's grab that data because that becomes, I suppose, to some extent the new benchmark. It's not so much working towards a set of numbers, it's more that's the movement that's giving, that suits this player's physiology, um, best it's giving them best control over their 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 flight so you know that they're hitting more good shots with more control and the quality of their bad shot is improved okay what are those numbers for that player because that's what we want you know how are they moving how are they interacting with a force plate if you're using some of that because that that's what in my mind becomes really important and then you know can they hit the variations that that they want to that they want to hit and then if you start delving into you know some of the the moneyball type stuff you were thinking um, you know for you know Mark Leishman is very much a visual external player, but he has statistics on every part of his game with um, with someone going right here 's where you're at right now relative to the field here 's what 's improved this year here 's where here 's an area for consideration you know over the last couple of events this has dropped off we need to pay some attention here so So different players deal with that information in different ways, But ultimately, with all of that data, let's call it, it can be as complex as you like. It can be as simple as it likes, as you like. But you need to package that up in such a way that you first of all gain the attention of the player and then you've got a plan of attack of how to move forward with it. So I always, one of the things we did, if I go back to VIS days, and I know Golf Australia do a little bit of it now still to this day, Is one of the strengths of the program is we were able to send our players overseas to compete. And to some extent, that was, you know, there was, there was, and we sent them over before people thought they were ready to compete at that level. But some of it, you know, some of it was about, okay, well, We'll give you a budget. You book your own airfares. You enter for the tournaments. You figure out where you're going to stay, blah, blah, blah. It's like, you want to be a tour player? Yeah, that's right. right. Here's an opportunity. nothing to do with golf, right. but you better be good at this. Stuff. Here's your first opportunity to start figuring that out for yourselves. It was very much, there's your budget. You come to us with what you're going to do and, and and move forward there. So there's that sort of thing. But the other reason we did it is we wanted them to be exposed to international level and to some extent come back and, you, and go, you know what, we played at Canoosti in this wind, and the guys I was playing at with the locals, they were doing this, and and I didn't have that shot. How do they do that? And I always think from a from a coaching point of view, if you get a player come along to you saying, "I have a weakness, help me with it," that's a very different coaching environment to me going, "You, geez, you need this." We need to fix it. It, it's yeah. totally different, and it's it, engagement, isn't it, yeah. Dennis? That's a different. Yeah. And, yeah, and tying it back in with that data thing again, you know, often we can go, "Oh, well." here's what we need to modify in order for you to be able to play that shot more consistently or the way you need to do it so although although there's so much information or data that's available to plays in this day and age you still have to just go right here's the way i'm going to present this to rod in such a way that he's it's going to gain his attention and that again is very different with with different players. Yeah, you could make the case really that the
0: information is for the coach to filter and then pass on, can you not? It's, it's
1: not always a great thing for the player to know those things, is it? So Get I confused. think, yeah, that, that's right. So, so coaches and support staff, it's deciphering that information to go, right, here's what's really important out of this and here's the way we're going to, yeah, approach this and player. And of course, that whole intangible element of coaching, which is
0: to tell each player in the way that makes sense to them and the way you explain that to Mark Leishman might be different to the
1: way you explain it to Matt Griffin might be different to the way you explain it to Brian McPherson. It's interesting. I, I always, I, I always feel like – not always – I always, I've had several times through my coaching career where a player has gone, I figured this out. And they've just gone, I figured out if A, B, C, D happens. And it's kind of like... I've been telling you that for two years.
0: Like, and I'll just go,
1: that's that's wonderful. That's amazing. And it's like, that's what we've been working on. But now, but now you, you, you've spat it back to me in a different way. And it's kind of like, I go, well, there's a learning opportunity for me. Maybe I should have expressed it that way. But but, you know, when a player goes out and, and they do something that costs them and they're able to step back and make a correction themselves, I think, um, I, I think that's a great thing for a player, you know, around self-confidence and self-reliance. So, so for argument's sake, you know, if you can create a situation... Well, one of the things I say after tournaments to players is, okay, let's do a quick analysis. What did you do well? What did you not do so well? What did you learn and what are you going to do about it? So kind of walking them through that process of, okay, where, where are you at at the moment as, 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 a, as a swinger of the golf club and as a player and what do you need to improve? It's like trying to get them to walk them through that process of coming up with the solution themselves because I'd much rather a player take a player through that process than me hopping on a plane going over than just going, right, this is what was wrong. I, I think it's just better for a player to go, even if you are sort of feeding the information, walking them down that path, for them to walk away going, yeah, I actually nutted this out and figured it out and I'm back on the march again. I think that's great for a player.
0: Isn't that the difference between knowing the times tables wrote and understanding how multiplication works? You come to the same place, Mm. but just learning that two plus two equals four... And having no idea why 2 plus 2 equals 4 is not as valuable as that moment where you go, oh, that's why 2 plus 2 equals 4. Yeah. It's a much more powerful. Yeah. It arms you much better for everything yeah. else that comes along yeah. with that, doesn't it?
1: And yeah, it, it, exactly right. And and it's interesting, you know, looking at plays. You and I could be 150 yards from the range and look down the line and just go, right, well, that's Ernie Els, that's Tiger Woods, you know, that's Jordan Spieth. Like they, they have their own... Yeah, patterns of movement, they're fingerprints, right? aren't they? Yeah. They're fingerprints. And they get to a certain stage where, where um, you know, as a coach you're always trying to balance, can I get them to improve their weaknesses without them losing their, their strengths? strengths. Right, that's, that's pretty basic, right? That's coaching 101. But
0: Fair pressure, though.
1: It is a fair it's pressure. Some of the careers you're talking about, yep.
0: you know. Yeah, well, you're
1: dealing with people's livelihoods. Very much. Yeah, so that's why, yeah, we talk, if we go back to that data stuff for a moment what it does is it provides information for you to make a better coaching decision because at the end of the day, normally you're making a highly educated guess of where you need to go, if you like, off the back of the um, information you have and the experience you have, you know, the trial and error experience you have. But sort of bringing it back to, you know, that, that conversation, um, you know the patterns of movement so if i use mark as an example if his striking starts to go off it's normally one of two or three things so it's several times we've been able to just have a conversation around that or do a face-to-face conversation around that and and get back on track it doesn't mean you're not trying to move them forward no, it's no, just no, like no. there's your starting point let's re-establish that base right what do we need to do do now and the only time, it was interesting, the only time that really didn't work was when COVID hit. So, you know, the start of 2019, you know, Mark won Tory. you know, lost to Trollhatton by a shot at um, at Bay Hill and then shot 500 in the first round at the players around a golf course. It's probably not his favourite. It was on, wasn't it? And I'm just saying, yes. right, this is, this is the year, you know. He was just moving so well. And then COVID hit and he came out the other side of that not so good. And then... Um, you know, to the point later that year in in October, you know, I met him at the Zozo where he was for Mark. He he was in crisis, um. But then again, it was just like, hey, who who's that guy out there? That's not the way Mark Leishman plays golf, nor is it the way he practices. And 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 sort of from there, was able to set that right pretty quickly. And and you know, talking about equipment, you know, he's got a great guy in the bag, Matty Kelly, and that conversation was Mat- Matty was part of that conversation, and um. You know, certainly part of Mark's success can be contributed to the guy he's got on his bag and the care that Matt has for how he plays. And,
0: Does he ever, I, mean, I don't think he's ever had another care. Well, not that I know. Uh, so he, I can only remember him. When right, he started you know, out,
1: he had um, a lovely guy by the name of Dale Eden on the bag. Um, and then ended up with Matty who he's known from honorable days and they're a, they're a great team those two and, and it's often very um, telling about a player the caddy player relationship and the, the, the yeah. you can read things
0: into that sometimes yeah. i think about and the character. and
1: the way they treat each right. other yeah you know, it, yeah. it says it says a lot yeah. but um you know it's it's really it's it's always interesting to look at the results a player is getting what the player's perspective on it is and what the caddy's perspective on it on it is and i find that I find that fascinating. And it's more data or information yeah. to, to sift through, if you like. So, it's an outside view, isn't it, yeah, and, uh, yeah It's interesting. And talking about stats, it's, it's really interesting. Often um, I'll look at Mark's stats and I'll just go, hey, how's this part of the game? And he just goes, oh, it's actually really good. Just remember this hole I was trying to do this, this and this. That's why it looks like that. So, mm. It's an
0: extraordinary game, isn't it? It's where, uh, and where I think Bobby Jones talked about this, you know, that golf is a lifetime of relearning lessons you've already learned, that a player like Mark Leishman can come back to two or three same things that he's probably been doing since he was 13, 14, mm. 15. Yeah. <laughs> All these years later, they come back to haunt you, and that the player themselves can't always necessarily pick that. Yeah.
1: That it's that one of those three things. It's an extraordinary game, isn't it, that you can get that far and – yeah, he's, I, well. I have to say he's been he's he's pretty good. Mark he doesn't tinker too much. I, I'll certainly I, I always say my oh, one of the things I, I I say is that my job is to expose players to a number of different ways of doing something to help them figure out what works best for them. So it's not often that Mark tinkers. He'll normally call me up or you know we all, might be face to face. He might be saying, "Oh, what do you think of this?" And I'll just go yep yeah, that either yep that fits in you can you can look at it from that point of view, or you know i don't know whether I like that because of this is what you've always done um but yeah he he'll just um yeah, we just get back to those things that have that have worked for him and and basically with mark because you know he's if you look at if you look at you know we're talking a lot about mark, but if you look at where he was brought up and his dna of of, of the way he developed. So Warrnambool Golf Club, great golf course. I mean, great golf course, like so many different shots required, It's windy, it can rain, it can be hot, cold, but the golf course itself, there's so many different elevation changes and so many different demands on your shot making ability. But from a practice facility point of view, like the putting green next to the pro shop's is pretty flat, really nice little short game green, like nice bunker and what have you, but essentially, as far as a range goes, you're hitting balls into a paddock. There's no real no real target and that sort of thing. So I, I look at the way Mark learned to play, and it was very much, well, I'll, I'll hit some balls and, and work on what I need to do. And he had some great tuition from Craig Bonney down there, you know, um, early in his career. But it wasn't partic- a particularly inspiring practice facility. And that's uh, that's not me being critical no to the man. place. It's just a statement of fact. So he'd much prefer to go and play. So the way he'd always improved was was by playing golf on the course so to this day you know when we work on mechanics we'll do it typically away from a golf tournament not during a tournament week so if mark thinks about his golf swing when he's playing he plays horrible yeah so he's got to be in that that reactive mode Now he's a player right so we'll work away from a golf tournament um we'll work on one simple thing so i work on quite as I said, you know, we, we gather all that information and just go, right, here's what we need to do with setup, here's what we need to do with your downswing, for example, um, or your movement through the ball, for that matter. And he'll hit some shots you he'll just go, yep, I've got that, I can feel that, um, I can practice the, that. And he'll just go, right, now I'm just going to hit some shots. And he'll stand there and he'll start recalibrating, if you like, all of the different shots he plays. He goes, yeah, all right, let's go and try it on the golf course. And he'll go out in the golf course and play holes and he'll just go through, through that sort of process where he puts it all all back together and he's he and he's very much a player who'll just go right I've got that I'm not going to try to fix it today I'll just keep chipping away at that you know over the next few weeks or whatever it is and just gradually get things get things back on track and of course because he spent of if we talk about bandwidth of, of movement because he spent you know the greater part of his career within a certain bandwidth he can sense it when he's starting to fall outside of it, but can he also sense it when it starts coming back in? it's narrowing too much, yeah. So it's, it's interesting with him, even if he hits, hits a bad shot when he's when he's been working on something, he'll go, yep, that's the way that should have come out. I can feel the way I delivered the club there. That's exactly where that should have gone, which to him is as much being back on track as going, yep, that came out there because it yeah. should have come out there. So it's interesting, you know, working with these players. Like Sometimes it's like bloody hell, who, who's teaching, who, you know? <laughs> well, so, Probably, yeah. Which is part of the fun of it. Probably you know? a
0: two-way thing happening yeah. there, in all honesty, because what you got – and this is my next and probably my final question because I've just seen how long I've taken for you and I could talk to you all day. But <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> uh, so you work with Mark Leishman. That's at one mm-hmm. end of the scale. Mm-hmm. There's the other end of the scale, isn't there? Mm. What are the similarities and differences between those two things?
1: So working with recreational golfers? Recreational and golfers? golfers, double-digit
0: players yeah. who – and I imagine you would see a lot of people who – have come to the game perhaps a bit later in life, mm-hmm. become completely obsessed with mm-hmm. it. The first thing they say to you is, I wish I'd taken this up years ago. And when mm-hmm. you spoke to them years ago and said they should try this, no, it's an old man's game. Mm-hmm. Well, hate to say I told you so, but we told you so. What's the difference with those people compared to
1: Mark? Apart from the sometimes <laughs> obvious physical, <laughs> yes. physical differences in ability, it's interesting. I, I'd almost put my recreational golfers into two buckets. There are ones that come along and they go, I don't really care that much about lowering my handicap or what I score. I just want to hit a few more shots out of the middle and show my mates who are slinging off me that I can actually I can actually hit a golf ball. I just want them once to go, wow, that was actually a really good shot. You know. So th- there's, there's those sorts of people. And then you get ones come along going, played the game for so long, my handicap's either stagnant or going out, I, can you please assess my game and, and, and put me on some sort of program that gets my handicap coming back the other way? So from the point of view, so that, that would be like the two different buckets that I would put them into at this stage. And then from there, the process isn't that different. So, you know, you'll watch them play golf, I think, if, if you can watch them play some holes because that's always eye-opening. Um, it's interesting. You should say that. I'll get you get you to expand on that up afterwards. Yeah. But yeah. And then um, you're going through a similar process as a coach. You're just going right. You're looking at the ball flight. That's their bad shot. They've spoken to me about. And normally they've got two. Right. They'll they'll hit a, you know, you know, a slice and a pull. You know, for example. And um, and you go through the process of going right. Well, first of all, from a concept or cognitive point of view, they need to understand what causes. They're bad shot, and it's surprising how often they don't understand what actually causes that shot. Do you reckon shock. it's
0: surprising, Dennis? I reckon ninety percent of people
1: at right. play the game have no concept, and I put myself in
0: this uh, no concept of what it is—the contact between the the, it, the the game is a constant surprise. Everything mm. feels the same, mm. and one's a hook and one's a slice.
1: Yeah. I just don't understand it. Yeah, at it's all. not often you get a hook and a slice and the same. No, lesson, no, no. But, no, it but you happen. know what I mean. But, was- but yeah, I, I suppose. Yeah, from a cognitive point of view, help them understand why their ball is doing what it's doing and then set about changing the motor program. So anytime, you know, obviously, you know, the, you know your cognitive abilities and your, and your motor skill. They're stored. Motor skills are stored in separate parts of the brain, so it's helping them understand. You are actually retraining the Coach brain in the 70s and neural wouldn't, pathways.
0: Wouldn't have known that, Dennis. That's, that speaks directly <laughs> to what I was saying about
1: that point. Coach in the seventies would not have known that yep. the motor skills are stored in a separate part of the brain. So, and then to some extent, around expectation, it's it's like helping them manage their expectation. Like my expectation, you know, at the end of a lesson, is to understand what causes their bad shot. We've worked on some sort of you know exercise, movement, or drill if you like, people call them drills, that create... The purpose of a drill is to create a model off which to work, yeah? So they can kind of go, right, yeah, I can feel when I do that, I'm doing that, and ideally they get to the stage where they go, oh, I can sense that that's different. And then importantly by the end of the lesson, they need to understand... Ideally they're able to say, right, they've done... You know, they've worked whatever exercise it is enough to go, oh, I felt myself do it that time and I could see the ball come off that way, I should have done this, shouldn't I? And when you get to that stage in a lesson, if you can, I know they're going to come back better because they kind of they get it. You've given them an exercise that's helping them move the right way, and they can actually self-assess. They they've got they're comparing themselves. They're part of it. Yeah, they're part of that. As a-
0: do we think sometimes of golf coaches like doctors? I'm sick, I go to the doctor, the doctor fixes me and that's our transaction. Yeah. I, my, my golf swing's off, I go to the golf coach, he fixes it and that's yeah. that. It can't be that way, can it? The player has to have an active part in the process.
1: Like there's all these, you know, there's so much on the on the internet nowadays. But I don't, if we, so here's part of part of getting, becoming a better player that, that, that needs to be communicated over time, you know, is you need to have your student working on the one thing as a coach that you decide you need to do because a good golf coach is working several steps ahead of where they are, right? They're going, right, I'll put this into place. We'll step back on it, see what changes because often you get reactive changes. Then I think I'm going to have to do this, this and this and then we'll be, you know, we'll be where we need, need to be. Um, but one of the things I think is really important is to help golfers understand what they don't need to work on. Because they've been on internet for years and going, well, you know, I need to do this, this, and this. It's kind of like, well, that's irrelevant to you, your physiology, your equipment, and the way you move. Like, you work on that, you're actually, it's not going to do anything. Here's what you need to do. And that's, like, when you go to the doctor, like, if you go to the doctor and you're sick, you know, or unhealthy, the doctor says, hey, listen, Dennis, just lay off this and less, do this. Less wine, more apples. And, and you might, yeah, you, <laughs> might, you might, and not cider, right? And you might, you might get... You might start feeling better, so I think that that whole thing of of knowing what you need to do. Don't worry about all this. If I haven't spoken about it, don't work on it. But and then the other part of that is is uh, around expectation. Is like how long it takes to become a really good golfer, and that and I'm talking about you know the, the the swinging, acquiring all the different skills that you actually need to get better takes time. Like motor programs, motor skills are very enduring. You know, you have a nerve, a a neural pathway with myelin built around it. There's already a super highway there for your golf swing. It's not a one-lesson thing or a 60-minute lesson thing. You can change concept and perhaps change some movement, but really owning that takes a bit longer. And most golf coaches will know when they look at a player that, well, you're going to have to be, you know, a number of different things that that we improve over time. And then, you know, that process, if you like, um, if – can I talk about juniors for a moment? Of course, absolutely. Yeah. So, so just to finish off on that, it's not it's not that – I don't find it that different working with a recreational or, or club golfer to a tour pro. It, it, it is different because it's not their livelihood. But the way I go about helping them get better is not that different. I'm, I'm not the quick fix guy. Like I, I had an example. I was at MGA many years ago, and I, and I had a guy show up with a bucket of balls in his driver. And he said, I've got a corporate day tomorrow. Can you help me? And I kind of looked at him and I said, <laughs> I said well, I'm on a hiding to nothing here. I'm either going to be you know, the, to- the toast of the town yeah. or I'm just going to be this guy that, that, that you know, ruined my day. So I said to him, he, we, sort of got in, we were a few minutes in, I said, here's what I want you to do. I said, you've got two options. You can go and get a refund. But what I'd really like you to do is just go and have a practice now because you haven't played for three months just get a bit of exercise, go and have your day tomorrow and come back and see me next week and let's do this the right way, which he did do. So, you know, there's, there's all of these different you know, theories around it, but at the end of the day, I, I sort of treat them like you, effectively what you're doing, you're trying to assess a human being you've got seeing in front of you you know, how they learn, what their goals are, and you just go down the path of trying to help them get better. And, and from that point of view, it's not that different to, to, touring, to, to touring pros. It's a relationship, isn't it, Dennis? It's a people business. It is, yeah. And that's and that's why, um, like, I spend a lot of my time teaching club golfers and juniors, and I do that because I genuinely enjoy it. You know, it's, it's, it's very different. Like, there's still pressure on you. Like, when someone's paying you for an hour of your time, they expect a result at the end of it, right? So, so it's different to, it's it's different to you know standing there watching a player come down the stretch in a tournament and you know hoping that everything you've said helps them to sort of get over the finish line. But there's still that that pressure and that you're dealing with in the expectation of, of the client, which is different for all of them. And then when it comes to juniors, um, yeah, I think I've spent the last I don't know. If, at least 15 years um, working on trying to provide a better quality of program for juniors you know and probably through through my own through my own two kids when they you know when they first started wanting what do you flying. mean by that a better quality of
0: program
1: what, what was the problem
0: with the quality of program before what are you trying to improve on what are the mistakes we used to make with
1: juniors so when i look at like what is a junior golfer? Like, what is a junior golfer? Well, if I put a photo of of a group of five-year-old juniors, which is very much a demographic nowadays, say 10-year-old juniors and 16-year-old juniors, the average pundit would look at them and just go, well, they're all junior golfers. And then the question becomes, well, would you treat them all the same and or treat them differently? Because clearly they have different athletic development and golf skill development requirements. Like they're, they're just totally different. Mental universe. and emotional development too. Absolutely. Totally. So I think when I talk about providing a better junior program, I think for a long time, and, and things are changing, certainly changing, but when, when I first started going down this path years ago, like a five- or six-year-old junior would be coached in a very similar way to a sixteen or seventeen year old junior, and and I can assure you that that is not, not optimal. Of, work, it? it's, no, of course well, it's not. it's not optimal. Like if you put together a program, a, a program that's not age appropriate, yeah, like it's built for a sixteen or seventeen year old girlfriend, that is a great recipe to drive a five or six year old junior who's sampling the game out of the game. You know, it comes back to that retention again. So the programs, you know, through. Titleist Performance Institute and you know the people that I deal with here in Australia we we just took a different look at it and just said okay well what are, what do these kids kids need so we basically created a program that's that's um takes a very significant you know it a very significant nod to long-term athlete development so LTAD is a term that's been around you know for for a, for a long time right and to some extent it's a retrospective study of how elite players became elite. You know, what did they do? Um, and from that there were there were, you know, the 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 big draw card, or well, the the big takeaways from that was they lived a multi-sport culture and they didn't in late specialization sports. They didn't specialize until they were until late, yeah? And I think not only at the time when I started developing my own junior programs, not only were the program's not age-appropriate, but they're almost early specialisation programs, um, which is great if you're a female gymnast, not so great if you're a golfer who wants to be at the peak of their powers between the age of 25 and 35. So, so the program that we rolled out with, L, with with TPI was, to some extent, the first practical... Actually, I shouldn't say that because there are countries around the world that would argue it, but but we basically took looked at LTAD and said, right, what's age-appropriate? And we went from there. So Tell if, people what sorts of things. It's quite
0: surprising okay. the things that you yeah. do with young kids. Yeah. As part of a golf programme. Yeah. I was quite staggered the first yeah. time you told me about yeah. it. It does make sense. Yeah.
1: So basically, if you look at um so kids are more sedentary nowadays than what they were when when I was young. Like and there's so many factors that come into that. There's there's, you know, parents wanting to sort of, you know, keep an eye on kids, make sure they don't hurt themselves or, you know, there's all sorts of, we're always worried about, you know, the, the people around that want to do yeah, harm of course, to our kids yeah. and that sort of thing. They're pulling playgrounds out of schools because they're worried about litigation, that sort of thing. So I, I could talk about why for, that is for, for hours, but, but our kids are more sedentary. So they come down, so they're sampling the game at a younger age. And they're, five six. This is the yeah age, yep, I mean, yep. five years. And they're making decisions around whether they want to stay in the game at a younger age as well. So what we do in our in in our programs is is we've actually surveyed our kids. It's pretty funny when you survey a kid, right? So we just go, what are your favourite after school activities and why? And number one, it's fun. It's, it's so much fun to do this. Number two is like, oh, I get to do it with my friends or I make new friends doing this number 3 and this is really important for, for for golf i feel welcome i feel like this is this is a welcoming environment um 4 is it feels good to do so imagine you know a 5 year old junior being given a driver and 100 balls and say hit that for the next hour yeah oh, no no you got to grip it like this i oh, know your stance yeah. is and, right. and then and then you have got to be good at it you got to get you got to enjoy doing it right you have got to get good at it then yeah. when you look at it Look at the reasons we play golf with different people or play golf. It's, it's pretty much for that. So we've taken LTAD and, and basically what we do is um, we have taken it upon ourselves to go, right, if kids are sitting on their bums or someone needs to take responsibility for helping them become athletes because often we, we get like three categories of juniors who come along to our programs. That's like A, the parents are golf nut, or the grandparents are golf nut. B. The kids are golf nut, or they, or C. Golf's the last resort. Oh, he's not good at football. He's not good uh, at cricket. Okay. And we kind of feel like golf's a sport he could play. Now, you and I just know the <laughs> athletic requirement of, <laughs> of right. golf. So, so our junior program, uh, the ones that we run, we have an athlete, like a childhood athletic development trainer who's on site. And what they do is they take – so if, if we had an hour, for example, with, with a group of fundamental phase juniors, which is like one of the early developmental phases, the window of, there's a window of opportunity there to neurologically wire speed. So you'll see like our kids trying to kick, throw, punch, whatever athletic development exercise you're doing. There's a, there's a do this as fast as you can. As far as hitting a golf ball, hit it as far as you can hit it. I don't care where it goes. Let's just take that opportunity to develop speed. Because if you miss it, if you miss that window, you've missed it. Okay, that can that can be a, right. um, affect how far you can, how wow. fast you can move as an adult, for example. So that's So we develop what I call fundamental movement skills, which are just the easy way to describe it. Is they're the building blocks of athleticism. You know, there's the um, locomotion skills: hop, skip, run. You know. Um, the ABCs, agility, balance, coordination, speed, um, object control, kicking, throwing, punching, striking, that sort of thing, and then kinesthetic and, and spatial awareness, if you like. And they're the sorts of things that if we look back on probably you and I, what we did as kids, I don't know about you, I got home from primary school, I unlocked the front door, I threw the school bag in the front door, and yeah. I was gone to yeah. dark. I was a bike rider. Yeah. I, was, I just rode a yeah. bike constantly. So what we're trying to do is is... Replace some of the athletic development that's not being done by parents or even to some extent schools this day because golf requires athleticism. And, you know, the thing is if we develop or assist to develop athleticism, you can actually teach them to become better golfers. Like there are golf. one of the questions I ask when I'm doing seminars on this because I, I, I lecture on junior golf at TPI around the world is I said, have you ever had that kid, that boy or girl, show up at seven or eight years of age, they've never played golf, and you say, hey, hold the club like this and do this, and they do it they just just straight do away, it, yeah. and all of a sudden you've got visions of Tiger Woods. Have you ever thought about what that is? Well, that's the, the expression of the athletic development that they've had. I can guarantee they've either got sporty parents or – They've had three or four or five different sporting activities that they've Baseball, played already. Cricket, basketball, yep. football, doesn't matter what it is. Yeah. And it typically is. typically the sports that relate to actually striking something, like for example, or throwing something, I think, you know, one of the great things parents can do for their for their little kids is little aths, because you've got sprinting in there, like sprinting's like taking advantage of that speed window, and then the field sports, like discus um uh, javelin you know hammer you know all of those shot put all of those they're just brilliant for golf there's a great crossover and 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 then the other end of the scale you get that kid come along who's seven or eight years of age and they're the and and i don't say this from a derogatory point of view they're like the australian chess champion and you just go well that they're lacking athletic development and that just from a coaching point of view i know which one i'd rather coach and I know which one I think will has more chance of making it, you know, at, at the higher levels in the game. So, you know, that the, the, the little athlete that's there, you just go, right, parents, you've done a brilliant job. Keep living that multi-sport culture. We're going to be doing stuff in the program that will challenge even where their athletic level of ability is right now. And then with the the other junior who hasn't done anything, it's just like I always say this in coaching: development is sequential. You can't start studying calculus if you haven't got the basics of mathematics. So. We assess them and just go, right, here's where we start. So those, let's say they're the same age group, those kids. They can train together, but they'll be doing totally different things. So the athletic kid will have a golf
0: club in his hand to be playing golf shots, and the other kid might be doing somersaults and so, things unrelated
1: yeah. to golf. So there's the athletic development component to the program. Then there's the golf skill development component of the program. It's a golf program, right? So yeah, cool. we're, we're doing Golf's that. Golf's to be the end result. So it'll be when they're doing their athletic de- athletic development, there'll be a different focus, there'll be a different, they might be using different equipment and, you know, the trainer can take them through that. And then from a golf development point of view, um, you sort of, you, you're working them through a curriculum. So we have a 13-year curriculum that we work through. It's like being at school. Wow. You show up at school on day one, here's what you're starting today. You know, What's um, the feedback, Dennis? Are there kids who've been through all 13 years yet? We've got some coming, just yeah. coming, like in the sort of, I'll call it mid-high school area what's been the feedback and what sort of things have you learned about because of course not everybody
0: needs or wants to go on to some sort of Mm high level i mean if the if the chess kid ends up just becoming a 15 marker for the rest of his life and loves the game and travels the world and is passionate about it it's equally as impressive and we don't want to get too taken away with just the elites
1: we're going to be talking about this chess kid so if the chess kid and I'll be pushing up daisies long before he gets to this stage, but if the chess kid is still has played golf his whole life and he's in his mid-50s and he plays every weekend, he's playing off 15, I consider the junior program that he came a through a to be a great success. success. It's a huge success. Because it gets back to retention. And as I said, the, jun- the junior programs around the world, it's interesting what parents – we haven't even started on parents, we haven't got time. But, <laughs> but the, <laughs> the, the expectation, like, like the yeah, – I won't even open that can of worms, but but the um, the programs need to be like if we had a world class talent come through, the program needs to be versatile enough to cater to, to that. To that, I, I kind of consider the junior programs that we run. You know, one of our jobs is if we look at the elite end of town, is to feed elite players into the pathway, because you're only going to turn out at the upper end of the pyramid. Um. Sorry, that relies on certain volume of players coming through, right? Yeah. So I, I think the junior programs need to be sophisticated enough to be able to, 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 to do that. But just as importantly or probably even more importantly is how many kids can we actually inspire through, you know, our own passion for the game and, and programs that are age-appropriate? to stay in the game long enough to go, I'm pretty friggin' good at this. I actually really enjoy it. I've made a bunch of new friends and this is actually what I want to do with my time outside of work. And you know, and you know, perhaps meet someone and introduce them to the game and then have kids that they introduce to the game. Like that's the the retention that that we want and, and you know, I I'm I can see like one of the things that I'm I'm really Big on with with junior golf is I'm actively involved in the junior program at Peninsula Kingswood, for example. And the reason I'm involved in that is I think our juniors deserve the best we can possibly give them. So you know I, I I'm involved in that program because I think they deserve it. And I'm not sort of trying to pump myself up. No no but, no 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 no. But no. if I can like a little bit of my passion for golf can wash off onto them and, and they enjoy themselves and they go, I want to keep doing this, even if some of them, you know, do decide that they become footballers or, or basketballers or whatever. Um, well, I feel like I'm I'm sort of doing doing the job. And I think in the past, if we go back to junior programs, a lot of the time it was like an afterthought. It's just like, yeah, we'd better run a junior program and and Bob, you're not doing anything so yeah, you can, you, can, be the you can run the program, company. whereas I just go, no, 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 no. I, I sort of understand the pathway and, and my job's to sort of be involved and, and lead from the front and um, educate coaches who are working with me and, and make sure they're doing a good job as well because our juniors deserve it and it's all about retention.
0: You've been a lifelong golfer, Dennis. You're helping to create lifelong golfers, your passions to create lifelong golfers. You've done some amazing stuff in the game. I've just looked at the time. It's been absolutely fabulous to do. It's not the last conversation we'll have, but for the moment, we'll let the listeners go. Really appreciate you taking the time, mate.
1: It's been fantastic. Thank you very much. Absolute pleasure, Rod, and and it's time for a... Um, it's time for <laughs> we'll a have one of those character. biscuits now that you're <laughs> delightful wife for earlier. Thanks very All right. much, mate. Thanks, appreciate man. It.
0: I don't know about you, but I found that a very refreshing interview given what's been going on at the top levels of the game in recent weeks and months. Now, for those wondering, the biscuits and cakes mentioned at the start were indeed dealt with appropriately, and Dennis's delightful wife, Glenda, did in fact make me a sandwich and some treats for my journey back to the airport, for which I am eternally grateful. If you're listening, Glenda, you've set the bar high for my next interviewee. That's all for episode 68, but I don't have a snippet of our next just yet because John Huggins will be doing that interview at the upcoming US Open. Now, I won't reveal the name of the guest, but suffice to say, you don't want to miss it next time on The Thing
1: About Golf.